before the scriptures read, I just want to say that we've been going through and reading post-resurrection experiences of the disciples with Jesus Christ. It's one thing on Easter morning to say he is risen. It's another thing to literally walk into the presence of the risen Christ in the days that follow. This is what happens um, in the scriptures. It tells us about how the disciples continue to have their own lives shaped by their encounter with the risen Christ, yet how that shaping really shapes us today. So as we've already talked about the fact that if you want to vitalize Easter faith, you hold on to being committed to Christ. You, you experience what it is to make disciples growing in your own faith walk and sharing faith with others. And yes, making sure that worship makes a difference in your life. Not only this experience, but what you do in your personal worship. Today we continue in that conversation and we receive this post-resurrection story of Jesus as he encounters the disciples by the seashore. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there and with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Thank you, Cheryl. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? They are just going about their routine, and they found you in the middle of their, of their lives. They, they saw you in an ordinary place, and they experienced you in a very simple meal. Loving God, we pray that today as we go through the ordinary of our worship, the routine of our Sunday, and the preparation for this week to come, we too might discover your presence with us and hear your invitation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've discovered that post-resurrection stories of Jesus make a big deal. All of the teachings of Jesus up to the period of his death and resurrection are critical for us to understand what it is to be Christians. But for the disciples... After he was resurrected, all of that became the foundation. Now I get it. Now I know what he was talking about. Now I know what he was saying is true. And had they not experienced the risen Christ, they could have wandered the rest of their life thinking, well, maybe those are really good morals or lessons, but not much more. 
And yet in the encounter of Jesus in the post-resurrection period, we've discovered that the disciples really were shaped for what they were going to go do next, which was to become the body of Christ in the world, to do the things that we've been talking about. They were committed to Christ in a brand new way. It's one thing to talk about Jesus. It's another to know him as the resurrected Lord of life and death and life after. It's one thing to tell some stories. It's another thing to be committed to making disciples, to offering to others the invitation to receive the blessing of Jesus Christ in their life and for us to be committed to grow in that walk ourselves. And then there's worship which is far more than antiquated behaviors and rituals. It's a dynamic relationship. Wherever we pause for a moment to give God praise, to confess, to to share a good word, and then to commit and offer ourselves. This is a post-resurrection story, and it's one I love. It's a story about fishermen who fished all night and caught nothing. I know that story. I know it well. So I'd like a miracle where finally Jesus shows up by the side of the Asable River and says, cast over here, and you catch a 28-inch brown. I would love that miracle story. I'm going to go test it this afternoon. (laughs) But in reading this story again, I've discovered that I have for long overlooked perhaps the most important part of the story. And while the miracle of the catching of the large, large number of fish Certainly it was an economic boon to the disciples and a confirmation that Jesus was near them. There's something that I've overlooked until this past couple of weeks. I knew that they'd been fishing all night. That's how they did it back in the day. And so, tired and frustrated with no catch, then having this massive catch, they must have had an amazing appetite. And Jesus stands on the shoreline with a fire. And they come off the boats, and they've got these fish. They've had time to count them. And they see Jesus, and he's already been embraced, and they make sense of it. Well, why don't we take some fish and broil some fish over the fire? Ever had walleye just recently caught over a nice fire? They had all the ingredients. But this is what I've missed until a couple of weeks ago. Scripture says this. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. He invites them to have breakfast. Jesus is not there simply having a fire where they can figure it out for themselves. He extends an invitation. He wants them to gather with him. He wants them to be with them in a very special way, to have a very simple breakfast. Yeah, I know, it's just some fish and some bread, but really, what more do you need? To be together with your closest friends, and yes, Jesus Christ resurrected. That's quite a breakfast. And so they gather there, but they gather there because it's an intentional act by Jesus to invite them to come out of their not being able to catch anything, out of their hunger and out of their weariness. Jesus' invitation is critical here because it confirms for the disciples even more, yes, this is really Jesus. Because of Jesus they knew who walked on this earth was always giving invitations. Invitations that invited folks to follow him, to rest with him, to party with him, to go out on mission with him. Jesus was always inviting other people into his space, into his life, into his experience. Jesus made room for everyone. 
Perhaps the most radical thing about Jesus that I see is he continued to welcome everyone into his midst without any level of discretion whatsoever. He invited neighbors, he invited the poor, he invited his own betrayers to be part of his journey, he invited strangers, he invited the old and the young, and so many more. It was a mark of his ministry. Jesus continued to be the ultimate host. Come and be in my presence. Come and share at this party. Come, let's have breakfast together. And so when the disciples heard this, on this Jesus on the shoreline, said, hey, let's go have some breakfast. They're, yeah, that's who he is. And the church understood that their purpose was to emulate what Jesus did. And so they began to invite. The church became the most radical hospitality agency in the world in the first century. They didn't have opportunities or reasons to go out and do slick evangelism campaigns. They simply invited people to come into the room. You know what the biggest, strongest tool of evangelism was in the first century? An open hearth and a comfortable place to sit. They grew by inviting people to come into the house, to have meal, to become friends. Not to become indoctrinated, but to be welcomed. Jesus taught the early church. The early church began to emulate this very simple practice. We are called to experience radical hospitality in the world because that is how we create holy space for each other. Romans 12 says it this way, Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And most of all, extend hospitality to strangers. That is so radical in this world. We are taught not to treat strangers with hospitality. Oh, our friends, yes. Fletcher, you can come to my house anytime. You and I know each other. It's good. But the stranger in the room, I'm not so sure about. We, we teach our kids stranger danger, and for good reason. Christianity is not a naive faith. It doesn't suggest that there isn't evil in the world. We just ask Fletcher to affirm the fact we know that there's evil in the world and we're going to fight against evil wherever we find it. We understand that. We're not naive, but we are radically biblically hospitable, which says when I see a stranger, I inherently have this reaction to separate space. I want to observe. I want to understand before I see if there's any danger to me, to see if there's going to be anything, anyone that I want close to me. Biblical hospitality says, no, we're not here about creating separate space, but creating open space. To be biblically hospitable is to focus on seeing the stranger and inviting them into our space so there together we can share with each other and learn from each other. Such behavior is radical in this world. But you only have to go to the Bible to understand how radical. The word hospitality in the Greek is made up of two words. And they mean this, love and stranger. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to love the stranger in our midst. It's throughout all of scriptures. Jesus loved the strangers in his midst and was willing to create holy space where those folks would come and be with him, be a part of the community. And those folks were not seen simply as folks other, as others or as commodities. 
You know, oftentimes I think people consider hospitality a way of selling somebody on something. Oh, good, here's somebody who's coming into my building. So we want to act very hospitable to them. Why? So they'll buy something. Or maybe as a church, so they can become a member. So they can help finish that $2.3 million gap or whatever. That's not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality does not see the stranger as a commodity, but as a friend, as a partner in Christ. So that's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. A cup of cold water, or in our case, espresso. We agreed it today when you came into the church. Did you have a chance to get a coffee if you wanted it? Did you bring your own? Tom brought his own. When you go out today, do you have a space where you can get more coffee? Because Lord knows you'll need it after the sermon. And, and cookies. And yes, today, cake. Can I get an amen for cake? Why are we doing that? Because we think coffee is the elixir of salvation? Well, some of you do, but that's not the reason. We offer coffee and cookies in the church so that you will slow down and talk to each other. Spend time with each other. Get to know each other. Because in those spaces where we slow down to take time with each other, there's the possibility that we might discover Christ in the middle of that open space between us. The truth is, most of us live our lives running so fast, we don't have the time. Amen? Which is why I'm imploring you today, if you want to do one thing this week, to develop your personal discipleship, begin the morning before everything else has grabbed hold of you, to create some space in your life for a time that day you will not know ahead of time, but you'll know in the moment, now's the time I need to pause and give a kind word. Now's the moment I need to stop racing by all, and doing all the important things in my life to take time and show compassion or love or just interest in someone else. And let me assure you, Maybe some of you have already thought about, well, I don't know what strangers I'm going to run into. I don't know who I'm going to drive by that I need to stop and help them with a flat tire. I don't know who's going to be there when I walk into work on. Do you understand that some of the strangers in your life who need your biblical hospitality have your last name? They're the ones that you have been racing by for too long because you're too darn busy, and one day we'll get to spend time with each other. No, that's not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality says, I will stop and pause for you because this is God's witness to me. This is where I discover the, jo the joy of life. This is where it's rich. This is where it's beautiful. So in the church, we have coffee and we have cookies. You have a large gathering space, and we've got... Why? Because we want you to learn here what you need to learn out there. 
don't race on to the next thing. Create open, holy space for the others in this world who do not have friends or family or a quiet time or a safe space. It's not easy. I happen to live with a lot of type A people in my life. God help me. But type A people get a lot done and they do great work and we want them to be continuing to be type A people. We say, don't be a type A person, but we also say, get everything done, we're asking you to get done. So it's hard. We send mixed messages all the time. The church struggles. The church, the body of Christ who was taught to go out and be the most hospitable group in the world, have you ever experienced inhospitable behavior in the life of a church? You laugh. Because you know it's true. Because we start to fall in love with each other and ourselves and the way we do things. And so when a stranger comes into our midst, there's a waiting time to see if they stick around long enough for us to be interested in investing in them. Or is it possible that we could indoctrinate them into the way we do things here rather than genuinely receiving the stranger and creating the possibility they might teach us to do things in a new way? It's ironic that in the world today, if you ask folks who are outside of the church, they will tell you that by and large their experience or expectation of the church is to not be welcoming. That's true across the board. That's why we have to be even more radically biblically hospitable because we have to overcome the reputation that we help create. In our denomination today, we're struggling to figure out what does hospitality mean. There are battles going on within the United Methodist Church about who's welcome in and who's welcome out. And while we're pretty clear where we stand on that in this congregation, in the denomination, they're not so sure. And we're in the middle of the most tumultuous time I've ever lived in in the life of the church as we try to answer the question, how far does biblical hospitality extend? We understand it to be for everyone. But the church still tries to figure out that answer. This week, in Kansas, there are 600 people gathering. 600 people from across the United States. Ten representatives from each annual conference. The Michigan area is one annual conference, to give that context. Megan Walther, sitting behind me, is one of the ten representatives from this conference going to that gathering. The purpose of that gathering is to consider what a Methodist church might look like in the future that understands biblical hospitality to welcome all people. I'm going to ask you, so the second thing I'm asking you, first one was create space in your life, right? Second one, would you pray for that gathering and for the church and for Megan? And for all who are going to that experience, that they might not simply do the politics of the church, but the work of Jesus Christ in creating a radically biblical, hospitable denomination where all of God's people are welcome to the table, to the confirmation kneeling bench, and to the process of ordination, and to every place else in the world. We want the world to know this is a biblically hospitable church. Will you pray for that, please? It is said that true hospitality is not when you do a great job of being a host and hostess and they walk away talking about how well you did it. 
True hospitality is when someone leaves your house feeling better about themselves, not about you. Hospitality is giving, a, giving people a place to be when they would otherwise be alone. And hospitality is creating a sacred space where God can work in and through you. At Clarkson United Methodist Church, one of your five core values is, is to be biblically hospitable. When we made that statement, we didn't have a coffee shop, we didn't have a gym, we didn't have a gathering space. And we quite frankly didn't know how to do what we said. And for the last 14 years, we've been trying to figure it out. And we don't have it perfect yet, but we're better. We've got coffee. <laughs> no, forget about the cookies, Joey. <laughs> the other thing we have is this. The other thing we have is this. We know that for a fact, from, we know for a fact that today, you linger longer in church than you used to. And it is our deepest prayer that you're practicing for what you need to do out there. Because there are people out there who have no place to be safe and welcomed. Are there people out there who are carrying burdens that just need someone to create holy space where they can be free to let it down, let it go? Yes. You are the ambassadors of that work. Fletcher, you just took the vows of confirmation. And I know you know this, so I'm really saying it to you, but I'm instructing them, okay? You just changed the course of your life. You just said in front of God and everybody that you're going to spend the rest of your life caring for the stranger in your midst. You're going to take time for the person that others don't have time for. That'll be your best gift to the world. Whatever else you accomplish in your life, the lives you change when you offer people a holy space, open, unending friendship, compassion, mercy, and fight for their justice, that's the gift you will give. That's your legacy. That's how you follow Jesus Christ. That's how you do it, too. So have a cup of coffee or hot chocolate or water, whatever you need today. That's fine. But more importantly, find someone to have it with either here or out there or both. I can trust you will, Joey. Will you do the same? For there are people out there who are so hurting and so scared and so alone, they need you just to pause long enough for Christ to be revealed.